most of us, even on our worst days, we have, we have terrible thoughts, but we don't act on them because <laughs> we, we just have rationale. We're like, you know, but what causes somebody to finally cross that line and, and extend into madness? Welcome to the Dead Harvey Podcast. This is Brad Paulson. I'm very happy to have with me today, J.D. Ellenberger. We talked to J.D. a little while ago, and I was telling J.D. before we started recording that I had this. Uh, J.D. is, uh, I want everybody to know that J.D. Is, is a super cool guy, because when we were recording the interview last time, I screwed up the audio, and J.D.'s like, I have a, I have a thing I can just do as like a backup for it. So he was like, you used an alternate program and kind of saved my ass, so I thank you for that. Uh, but you're more than welcome i had forgotten all about that but yeah. now that you mentioned it yeah that was the one thing i was like oh man i feel so bad about that but but you since you have a musician's background you were like oh, i got some stuff i can use to to save the day on this so it was cool so yeah. anyway that one got saved now this is the second part of our interview here now jd has completed his movie lacrimose primrose right around the same time he said he was going to complete it which is awesome and uh so uh congrats on finishing that this movie here Thank is you. uh is about uh well i would describe it as a uh poetic descent into madness and paranoia it's about an author that goes off the rails uh dealing with the death with, with the unforeseen death of his child kind of takes a lot of, out of it on his wife and takes to the bottle to deal with the uh isolation and madness that's growing inside of his mind so was there uh what was the the main seed of inspiration for this movie well, the movie was derived from a short story that I had initially written some years back, probably five or six years ago. And Lacrimose Film was not even the film that I had intended on working on. Um, I can't recall if we told your listeners the last time, but prior to COVID, I had another film that I was working on, on called The Art of Defiance. And that film had easily a hundred cast members at least a dozen to 15 different locations art galleries diners you name it we were in the thralls of that preparing and covid hit and everything got shut down and i knew at that point there was no way that we could continue on with the art of defiance and you know not only because all of the uh, locations that we had procured were shut down. But then, you know, you had some actors and actresses that either they had health issues and so they didn't want to be around anybody on set. So they were like, you know what, we're just going to, you know, we're just going to wait this out till till it passes. And then, of course, you had other crew members who were like, yeah, well, come on. Well, regardless, I just knew that there was no way that, that we could that we could work on that film and I needed to backpedal and look at alternative solutions and being that i'm also an author i started leafing through some of my books of either finished or half finished stories and a story that i had always enjoyed was the lacrimose primrose and the funny thing about that is that is only a six six page short so it was for a collection of short stories so I really like the premise of that story. I like the idea of something as simple, something as mundane as a flower dying that sends someone over the deep end. Because I've always been into psychology and wondering, 
you know, most of us, even on our worst days, we we have terrible thoughts, but we don't act on them because <laughs> we we just have rationale. We're like, you know, but what causes somebody to finally cross that line and and extend into madness? So I've always loved that notion, and I explored it on Noctambulus, my previous film, and it's something that uh, it's just a familiar story for me that I I like to uh, to work with. But the, the real fun was adapting a six-page short story into a feature-length film. <laughs> so, um, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. You know, that kind of reminds, it's funny because this movie has uh, is, uh, very kind of reminiscent parts of, of The Shining. And there is, and you would think, and it's funny because with Stephen King books and like those short stories, you would think that would be a major challenge to adapt a short story, like something that's only like six pages long or something like that. So um, how was, what was the most challenging part of adapting that, that short story into a feature? You know, I think that it was a lot easier than one would assume. And perhaps because I wrote it, had I been directing another author's story, you know, it might've been a little bit more challenging, but the fact that I had, had written it, um, Really, I just had to expound on the characters. If you look at the original short story, the short story was only the two main characters, Caleb and Elizabeth, and everything that was going on in his mind. However, to make it a feature length and to try to change things up a little bit, I introduced additional characters like Amanda, the next door neighbor. And, uh, you know, even actually the funny thing, too, is um, his daughter, Annie, uh, that you'll see in the film, she became a lot more, even though she's still a sub story in mm -hmm. the film, uh, she, she became more omnipresent in the film than she was in the short story. In the short story, she was more of just voices in his head. But, you know, when you're working on film now, I can, I can uh, show her visually on the screen and she took on a little bit more life of her own in the, you know, in the film aspect. So. Yeah. Now, where did you find, I don't know if I pronounced his, his last name right, Ted uh, Bodnar, is that right? How do you pronounce his last name? That is correct. Yeah, you're where, spot on, Ted Bodnar. Where did you find him? He, he's great. <laughs> I absolutely love Ted. He is a madman. Mm -hmm. Let me just tell you that he is a complete method actor. And we were literally, well, not me. Um, I had to stay sober and professional. But but Ted, Ted was drunk in almost every scene and able to perform and and overperform. Mm -hmm. He's such a method actor. We tried, we tried working, I think maybe the first two days, I had a whiskey substitute. And he's just like, JD, this is not working. I need the real stuff. Can we send somebody on, on a run to the liquor store? And from there on out, I got such great performance from him <laughs> that, you know, had he gotten sloppy and right, unable yeah. to perform then I would have just put my foot down and said, I'm sorry, Ted, but um, I'll, I'll go back to how I met him and then, and then um, backpedal a little bit on, on his performance. But I actually met Ted on set for another film that was being shot in our state by another friend of mine. And, um, you know, I had never known Ted before that. And he just, he just had a small walk on role. And I just knew from watching that performance that he was going to be brilliant. And um, it's the same with Michelle that played his wife, Elizabeth, in the film. Um, when I was casting, I knew that those were the only two that I wanted for my leads. And luckily, I got them. Um, had I not, I would have been very disappointed because I, I couldn't foresee anyone else 
playing Caleb, but Ted. And uh, likewise with Elizabeth, I couldn't picture anybody but Michelle Mullins playing her. But uh, yeah, when thinking back on watching their performances, and especially Ted, Michelle was great, but their their forms of method, uh, their forms of acting are two completely different. Michelle is scripted. She's by the book. She's well rehearsed. So she can show up on set. She knows every line verbatim. I don't ask my actors or actresses to be verbatim. In fact, I like it when they can deviate, when they can take what I've written and run with it, because I think that that makes a film feel more authentic. You know, I mean, I've been an actor before and, and worked with directors where you forget to say one minuscule, unimportant word. And they're like, cut, you didn't say and. <laughs> okay, did that change anything? You know, and they're like, yeah, I don't know if it's an ego thing where they're mm. just like, yeah, you know, you have to, for me, I'm like, look, I, you know, and, I, and I've heard other directors say this uh, in, in recent interviews where it's like, you know, they feel the, if you choose, if you cast wisely, you should be able to let that actress, you should feel comfortable letting that actor or actress just run with it. And, um, and Ted, the one thing that really astounded me about him is, you never knew what you were going to get out of him. And most of the time when we filmed him, I had to look away because I was so wide-eyed with the biggest Cheshire grin on my face going, oh my God, this is so insanely good that I didn't want to mess him up. So sometimes I would just turn away from the camera and just let him do his thing. Um, it, it was phenomenal. So sorry <laughs> if, if I elaborated on that too much, but it just outstanding performance. Oh no, that was great. I, I would have the same reaction as well too. Yeah, because because he he was he was really delivering the goods there. I was I was gonna say like um, at your like I was gonna actually actually you you answered my question because I was gonna ask you about your directing approach to get him to that state. But it looks like uh, like he found it and then and then worked with it and you let him run with it, which is awesome. But I think that's great too. It's like we just let the the actors do what they want as if as long as they're not like changing it into like something different like a completely different movie. Like all of a sudden right. we're making cat on a hot tin roof or something, as opposed to, as opposed to this ghost story. Yeah. But then, uh, but yeah, no, I think it worked great. And so do you, so, okay. Here's, I guess I got a directing question for you. When this, so this, this atmosphere is very kind of like somber and there's a lot of uh, domestic tension, like bordering on mm -hmm. violence in the air and a mm -hmm. lot of like looming madness going on. So to get to that state for the actors, do you, do you try and like pull a Kubrick and maybe drive them drive them more over to to insanity, or do you keep everything kind of like comfortable and relaxed and let themselves get there? You know, to be perfectly honest with you, there's there's a side of me that would like to say yes, I was completely like Kubrick and made them miserable, but um, but unfortunately, no. Um, we had a very I like to keep my sets very very much like a family gathering. If, I, if I'm if i working with you on one of my films, you've instantly become family because I, I don't cast just to cast. I'm very particular on who I cast and who I know not only can pull off the performance, but also who I can work with on a personality level. Um, and so, you know, it's funny. We had joked uh, in the past saying, yeah, you know, when this movie comes out, we're doing interviews. Should we talk? Should we say, yeah, JD was so miserable and, and we just sulked the entire time and nobody was allowed to speak or smile. But to be honest with you, as soon as I yelled, cut, you know, we were just 
having a good old time on, you know, a 10 minute break and then come back. And that's that's how I knew that they were brilliant actors, you know, because you hear some some actors, they don't allow you to speak to them during break. And if you are to address them, they're such method actors that you can only address them by their character's name. And, mm-hmm. you know, it, and so the fact that we were, you know, I would yell cut and we would go out, have a smoke break, we'd laugh, tell jokes, what have you, come back in, and they would be able to just pick right back up uh, where they left off. That says a lot about their acting ability. Yeah, absolutely. So he's so, so Ted, even though Ted was full on like method acting, you guys could take a break and go outside and he could just go back to like being regular Ted and then go back to being uh, crazy Caleb. <laughs> So that's great. Yes. That's great. Uh, yeah, because this... I hear sometimes he had trouble turning it off yeah. once he got home. Um Ooh, and not yeah. not the not the violent aspect, yeah. of course, but uh you know, sometimes maybe he took Caleb's drinking a little bit too far <laughs> right. Outside, right. outside of the set, you know. But like maybe know, I had a fun time at work today. Now I'm gonna maybe scrounge through the cabinet, see if I got any leftovers. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not been drinking. I'm preparing for tomorrow. Uh, you know, but but yeah, no, it was absolutely brilliant. And uh, you know, I had my reservations about letting him have real whiskey on set just because I didn't want him to. I mean, because I'm I'm be perfectly frank with you. There were days on set where we went through, you know, two bottles of whiskey. Yeah, and I'm thinking, is he going to be able to perform? You know, but. Uh, he was a consummate performer and was able to keep his composure. And ah, this guy's got a constitution about him. Oh, nice. Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, that was fantastic. So, uh, the the name Caleb uh, McCollum is that kind of a hint to any like uh, existing authors or? No, there's um, they're just they're an Irish American family. It goes a little bit more in depth in the actual short story than it does in the film, but it wasn't really, you know, it wasn't really needed in the film adaptation. And, you know, a lot of people have told me over the years, because I just, I just realized last night, I've, I've been in this business for 14 years now. It mm-hmm. didn't occur to me till last night. But over the years, a lot of people have told me, you know, your style of directing and filmmaking is much more European than it is as a medical director. And, uh, you know, I like long takes much like I don't know if you're familiar with the director Bellatar. Uh, Absolutely brilliant. But he'll just take a piece and he will just focus on, you know, and, and I've always been that way because to me, I think it's the subtle details, whether it's a certain eye movement or a movement of your hand, things that a lot of people don't pay attention to. Um, those are things that, that I find fascinating and can really make a scene. Um, but not only do we adapt the short film into a feature length, the original rough cut of the movie came in at almost three hours. The oh, fact wow. that I was able to, to streamline this film into a 97-minute film. Yeah still unbelievable to me because i thought for sure uh you know we were going to be looking at at least a two two and a half hour film but uh but yeah so you know anything that you know his name's caleb mccallum her name's elizabeth you know there's no notes um i was interviewed on a podcast earlier this week 
someone had thought that I had thrown an Easter egg into Stephen <laughs> King because there's a package that's delivered. And it says Derry Road. Oh, yeah. I, was, yeah. Mm-hmm. I actually grew up in Derry, Pennsylvania. Yeah, so yeah. it's just a, just a coincidence. Um, no, no Easter egg to Stephen King. I just wanted a good Irish name. And Caleb is a very good Irish name. Yeah. So the reason I was asking is it kind of reminded me of. I think there's a horror author named Robert McCameron or something like that. So I was kind of curious if 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 it was that. Is there a um is there kind of like so to to write material like this and get yourself into kind of like mind frame of mm-hmm. of madness? Do you feel like you have to get yourself in that mind frame? Is there kind of like a ritual that you go through or a certain time of night that you go through, or is it something you can just kind of ease into and get into the get into the characters for? Uh yeah. So that style of writing, I honestly consider myself a one-dimensional writer because everything that I write, I would say the large majority of it, everything's from first-person point of view, someone being driven mad and what they're dealing with, you know, and perhaps that's because I grew up loving Edgar Allan Poe and he was the first author I had fallen in love with when I was nine or ten and then had read The Black Cat. But I write from a very uh, solitary place as far as the person in the story. I like minimal characters. And uh, again, not to go back to Stephen King, but he's always done that so bro- brilliantly. You know, yeah. you look at, uh, you know, a lot of his films, whether it's The Shining or The Mist, and, you know, you have locations where pretty much the entire film takes place in one spot. And, yeah. you know, there's there's minimal actors. And that worked out great for the pandemic, um, but that's always been kind of my preferred style of writing to begin with. And as far as my approach to writing, I can only write in the early hours. Of the, I'm talking like three o'clock in the morning, mm-hmm. four o'clock in the morning. Uh, as soon as the rest of the world wakes up, I'm no, I no longer have that ability. Even if I can see sunlight, it just, it's distracting. So the outside <laughs> world could be dead quiet. But, you know, it's just when you're awake at three, four in the morning, everything's pitch black. There's no sounds. And I don't know. I I don't want to sound contrived and pretentious. This is this is the honest to God's truth. I've I've had this talk with with friends and family before. But when I write, it's almost as though I'm having an outer body experience. I lose everything around me and I somehow transport my inner being to where I'm at in this particular said story. And a lot of times, by the time I'm done writing, and I guess I come back to to reality, a lot of times I think, wow, did I write that? You know, I almost feel like I'm a medium where something is channeling through me and doing the writing. And I'm just I'm just the tool that puts it on the paper for them. Um that probably sounds really insane, but I, I swear on my life, uh, that truly is how it feels when I write. And, um, you know, and then, of course, once everything's down on paper, uh, I spend a lot of time by myself, probably 12, 14 hours a day by myself, other than with my cats. And I'll just walk around the house. I'll pick one character that day. Mm-hmm. And like a madman, because I'm the only one here, I'm just <laughs> bellowing out lines and going through motions and and finding ways to really to really get that character. Um so that I can go back to the writing board tomorrow and then maybe expand on something or, you know. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Uh, Like writing as a portal to another world, that's what it's supposed to be. 
Yeah. yeah. So it's cool that it's cool that you can make that happen. Like get yourself in that state of mind. Right. I think that time of night does completely help. Like as long as you can, you turn off like, um, like I'm not going to look at YouTube or I'm not going to like even listen to music. Oh, yeah. You take like all those distractions out as well. Yeah. Yeah, most certainly. Yeah. And if I do listen to any music, which is a rarity, it has to be, you know, almost Baroque chamber music. It can't have any guitars or vocals, nothing that's distracting. A lot of times, uh, especially in the early stages of Lacrimose, I had the doc, uh, Cabinet of Dr. Caligari soundtrack on. Ooh, and, yeah. you know, just just uh, orchestral uh, Baroque chamber music is such perfect music to write to because, you know, it's not distracting. I can put it in the background, but it, it's most of the time I prefer to just write, in, you know, total silence if if at all possible and usually by a book light i very seldom even have lights on i have i have a little book flashlight and uh i just turn that on and it just comes on just a watch battery so it doesn't give off it just gives off enough light to see the page to write and that's it so we were talking about this before the ghost effects in this movie are really cool mm -hmm. classical feel how did you let's kind of recap how you achieved these ghost effects because it looks different than you see in most any other movie that's trying to pull off ghost effects because it is using this effect that makes it look like it's a, like a classical movie with the ghost showing up. So how did you achieve that effect and how kind of painstaking was it? I, I'm thank you very much. I'm glad it looks classical and it should, because the way that I did everything was the classical method. Everything was dual layer. So, uh, you know, that was a lot of fun. So, for instance, without giving anything away to the viewers that uh, that haven't seen the film yet, but whatever scene I was working on with with Annie, the ghost, what I would do is I would set everything up, try camera on the tripod, keep everything stationary, and I would just shoot that direction for several minutes. And then I would hit stop and then I would put Chloe the actress who played Annie in the movie, I would put Chloe in place and have her do her thing. And I would film that, but because the camera never moved from its prior initial location, you can just take and overlap the two layers of film and then change the opacity and on the one layer. So therefore it gives her that ghostly effect. And, and uh, to me, that's always been my preferred method. Um, I can't stand CGI. So I didn't want to use any CGI in the movie. And I just, you know, being a lover of the classic silent films and one movie in particular, um, Phantom Carriage. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but that's one of my all time favorite silent films. And, uh, you know, it has some amazing ghost scenes in that film. And it's all just, you know, dual layer and changing the opacity on the top layer. And, and that's how we were able to, to do Annie in this movie. So that was, that was a lot of fun. And uh, the scene with her in the hallway, that was, that was probably the most fun for us to shoot. I'm trying to describe this without giving any spoilers to the listeners. Um, but let's just say at one point, Annie's a bit outraged and doors start opening and closing on their own and things start flying out of rooms and, um it's it's that was just that was a whole lot of fun so not only did we have to shoot with multiple layers on that but we had to do that whole scene backwards yeah. i had to figure out how that was going to work in my head where okay does the door open or close first because I, I needed to figure out everything so that when i we shot everything backwards because 
my assistant Bernard and I we're behind the camera and we're literally throwing objects into the room. And then just as they go into the room, having somebody that's hidden behind the door, slam the door shut. <laughs> yeah. So then that way, when we reverse everything, the door opens up and then everything comes flying back out the opposite direction towards the camera. So it was so much fun to not only execute <laughs> that scene, do it in dual layer, but then also do everything backwards and make sure that it would work when I reversed it in post-production so that that was a lot of fun yeah i think well it's, it's rewarding as an audience member to see that and especially well just to see any kind of as much practical effects as possible now but i think we're seeing a little bit of a resurgence of that because hollywood's been getting in so much trouble for their cgi right. not going too well and then like the yeah. cgi artists not being too happy with having the work overload and stuff so we are seeing and i'm seeing a lot more indie movies now with practical effects which is great so I, yeah i love that yeah. stuff but i love the fact that it's kind of like mixing that uh that element of madness with that kind of classical ghost star. I think it's a really cool combination that Thank kind you. of, yeah, it's kind of like you're almost watching a couple of different eras of movies. I noticed too, like in, uh, on the set in your house, like you still have like the, the classical, like rotary phones and everything as well too. So mm -hmm. that, that, uh, that helps, that helps the viewer get into the mindset of that kind of classical movie too. But a lot of those elements worked really well for it. Thank you. Yeah. I definitely wanted to have, um, you know, my whole aspect was, because it's not in the script. I took everything that was contemporary out of the house. Yeah. Any appliances, everything was yeah. stripped bare bones like it was in the 80s. You know, you had no. So to me, that was one of the most terrifying aspects of the story where, you know, it takes place in the Catskills. You don't have many neighbors around that you can run to for help. Right. You don't have a cell phone. You know, there's no. There's not really much contact with the outside world, and that, you know, helps to bring the point home that I wanted the film to be very hopeless, very claustrophobic. So not only are you in this tiny, small house with with a psychotic human being, but, <laughs> yeah. you know, as far as trying to uh, seek yeah. help if need be, uh, there's it's very limited in those yeah. regards. Yeah, absolutely. So. So when when you write, uh, so when you're writing something, when you're coming up with an idea and writing something, do you just kind of like write what you want and then think about the location afterwards or on the resources that you have available or is it kind of vice versa? When I'm working, when I'm working with short stories, obviously, if I don't intend it to be a screenplay, it doesn't really, you know, it doesn't factor in. But when I'm working on a screenplay, most certainly it's it's about the locations that I have. Um, you know, most of the time, actually all of the time, I'll go scout locations that I have available and make sure that they work. And, you know, from that point, you know, th there could be certain aspects of a home that that I could that I never thought about working into the story. And I might see a creepy crawl space or something, mm -hmm. some characteristic of the home that helps me to elaborate on the story uh, where had I not seen the, the location in advance, I might not have worked something in. So I always make sure that, you know, before I get into the meat of a screenplay, I have my locations lined up, that I visited those locations and, uh, you know, and I have a film. That way I know what I can get away with in the movie. Um, and yeah. even with this, even though I knew we were going to be filming in my home because of COVID, uh, I was still hindered. You know, I, I wrote for my environment, but, you know, I wrote out, shot sheets months before filming i had all my camera angles mapped out in my head this is what we're going to do 
this so so on and so forth. And like I said, the rooms are really small. So by the time you get everything set up and you get the stage dressing and you get the actors in the room, and now I find out shit. The only way that I can pull this shot off that I had planned is if we knock this wall out or if there's yeah. like I just I didn't physically have the room to execute some of the shots that, that I had in mind in advance. But, you know, I'm also I think not to pat myself on the back, but I think I'm also very good at adapting on the fly. And so I think that we were able to execute some really cool shots Um just flying by the seat of our pants sometimes because we just had to work with the limited space that we had around us. And it, again, it helped to drive that claustrophobic feel. Um, yeah. So, yeah. And I think just like a good, I think it's like a good kind of like rule of thumb for any horses, obviously everything has like a, everything is its own different case scenario, but I think that like the elements are going to be much fr more friendly to the independent filmmaker. If they have a cast of, you know, five people are under five locations are under. And if it's mm -hmm. $5 billion or under as well, too, I think, yeah. I think the Blumhouse thing is they do, you know, they do stuff obviously on the super low budget end at the studio level, but they always have like that rule of, or at least up until kind of recently, their general rule was 5 million or under, you know, but, right. I, but yeah, I think there's so many things that can go wrong. Did any, uh, tell me about like, kind of was, were there things that, that went wrong that you had to, to uh, correct for, even though you're keeping everything user-friendly to, uh, or, or friendly uh, on an independent filmmaker level, what went wrong and how did you fix it? What demon, what gremlins showed up to, to cause havoc on your set and how'd you fix it? You know, surprisingly throughout production, we, we didn't really have, the only gremlin that we had <clears throat> was with the sound. And that's because my home has all hardwood floors. Oh, it was oh, yeah. 1950s, and you know I live in a highly populated residential area that has a lot of ambulances, helicopters, loud neighbors, dogs. So, you know, there was really no way for me to soundproof any of the rooms that that we were filming in because everything was utilized. Um, and working in such close quarters, you literally saw everything in the room. So there was really no way for us to you know, put any sound block padding up or anything. So, and, you know, we had some outdoor shots um, and there was just no way that you could control that environment. So um, I basically, Lacrimose, when it was done, was a silent film. I mean, we used the boom. We tried to get the best sound that we could, but it, it was just, there was I'm like I said to the cast. I said if we're gonna if we're gonna have a professional sounding film, the only way to do this is afterwards. We're gonna have to go into the studio, do ADR, and then I'm gonna have to fully affect the entire film. So you know that's what we did. The actors all did their voiceovers, which you know there's a lot of actors that that really prefer that. Brando was a big mm -hmm. fan of of ADR, and that's one reason why he was so close lipped when he did his lines. <laughs> he said that, oh, no he kidding, said that huh? way because if he had to go in and do ADR afterwards, it it wasn't hard to match up because he didn't really move his lips that much. So it made it easy for him to do voiceovers and post. And uh he was a fan of that. But but yeah, so it worked out really good. The actors, you know, nailed everything uh with their voiceovers and posts and then I had so much fun adding the Foley effects and playing with the music and the ASMR sounds. And uh, so that was really about the only gremlin. <laughs> yeah. Well, so we learned that uh, hard uh, indie filmmaking lesson of the day, hardwood floors, 
great for spilling drinks, but uh, not necessarily for sound sometimes. Uh, I mean, yeah, they I look just... amazing. I can't stand yeah. carpet, you know, and yeah. I love yeah. when you watch a film and it's just, yeah. you know, old, you know, uh, spiral staircases, hardwood floors, absolutely gorgeous looking. But, but I mean, you know, if if somebody on set, they, they can be as quiet as possible. And if they just accidentally shuffle yeah. their foot the slightest bit, it's going to creep the floor. It's going to pick up and, you know. Yeah. So. Wow. That's, I had no idea of that, about that. Oh, first of all, I'm going to say that, like, I think, like, the Foley and everything adds to the classic movie feel. So I think that was actually cool that worked out in your favor that happened. Mm -hmm. And I think that's awesome. And then number two, um, I had no idea that was why, why Brand. I just thought that, like, he was using it as, like, an acting tactic to put marbles in his mouth to try and get like that character down for the godfather or cotton swabs or something i had no idea that that was for like user-friendly adr that's, the cotton that's swabs, yeah the cotton <laughs> yeah. swabs were for the aesthetics but uh, yeah. as far as him being more because i made ted and mm -hmm. michelle everybody they all mm -hmm. grown of course and i've done this as an actor myself the first mm -hmm. time i worked on a film and the director told me johnny we're going to need you to go back and do voiceovers oh man i was a bundle of nerves I'm like, I can't, they're like, look, it's easy. This is how we're going to do it. But I mean, I knew that I had to do voiceovers about two weeks before we went in to do them. And I was, I was a nervous wreck. And, yeah. uh, and then I did it and everything was great. I'm like, oh, that wasn't hard at all. Well, now I was on the opposite end where now I'm the director telling my cast, look, we're going to have to do voiceovers for this entire film. And they're growing. And they're like, no, <laughs> yeah. I, I can't do this. I'm not going to be any good at it. And so I made them watch interviews with Brando nice. and other actors talking about some of their techniques. And, you know, the one thing that Brando mentioned is, you know, keeping his jaw really clenched. And that way he didn't have a lot of uh, yeah. a lot of movement and could really, you know, say really anything that he wanted in post-production uh, without, you know, worrying about any continuity issues with it matching up. So, yeah, that's oh, awesome. And that's a great, like, that's actually, like, great uh, director advice for people, too. Like, somebody's kind of uneasy about doing ADR, just point to Brando. <laughs> that's fantastic. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, uh, out of curiosity, so you adapted this from a short story, and then you made a feature-length movie out of it. Mm -hmm. Do you have any plans of writing in a novel off of this, a novelized version? Possibly. Possibly. I... I mean, I really miss, I really, Lacrimose Primrose, the short story was originally intended for a collection of short stories that I was going to release. And then I get so busy with the film work that, you know, the book writing takes a back seat. Um, I don't know, you know, people have, people have joked with me saying, oh, you know, the way you left things are kind of be a sequel. And I don't like doing sequels. I, I like, once I'm done with the film, being done with it. And I do have immediate plans. Once we're done with all the promotion and the and the DVD comes out and everything like that, uh, I'm immediately going to jump into the next feature-length film. So um, if I were to ever adapt it, it would be some years down the road. Although, you know, an, illust an illustrated graphic novel might not be a bad idea. Be cool. Kind of cool. cool to come inside with you yeah. know with the dvd so yeah i don't know you maybe put a thought in my head there so <laughs> yeah because it would be for like the noir kind of elements to it that would fit really well with a graphic novel but yeah. so you 
So you did a lot of, you wore a lot of different hats in this movie. Um, mm -hmm. Cinematographer, writer, director, which one of those do you enjoy the most? And was it out of necessity or because you really enjoy it? Uh, both. both. I've never intended, I mean, there's, there's a part of me that enjoys doing everything myself, but then there's the other part, especially in post, even though post is my favorite, I believe. Um, you know, there's a part of me where I wished I had a really nice team around me, but I've been doing it, you know, myself for so long, um, that I don't really think about it too much anymore. I mean, on Noctambulist, I had, uh, hairdresser, makeup artist, wardrobe specialist, uh, location managers. Those were all great, but you know, just like with Lacrimos, with Noctambulist, I wrote, directed, edited, you know, did everything. And, and so for this, it, it was the same way. And, um, you know, I wished I do. I wished I did have a good team that was somebody that that I could work with and post very well. But, you know, it's not my intent. I've, I like to have a family of people around me. As I mentioned, I like to have my sets to be like a family environment. And I've been very fortunate as a director to work with great actress, actresses and actors that are like family. But I've tried to outsource to friends of mine um, everything from artwork to you name it, editing bits to, you know, music compositions. And uh, people, I, I think their hearts are in the right place. They act like, but let's face it, most people are just just lazy. You know, I've tried to bring so many people along with me in the past. You know, I come from a small mm -hmm. uh, Western Pennsylvania country town. Yeah. And I have so many artistic friends there that are talented. that will literally cry on their bar stools and say, I can't stand living in this, you know, piece of shit country town. Nobody's ever going to recognize my talents. And then someone comes along like myself where I got the hell out of there. I got a distribution deal making these feature films that are being seen around the world. And I call, call up some of those old friends like, Hey, you know, I've, really, I have a lot to take on right now. And if I just had a person that could knock out this illustration for the movie, instead of me having to do it or do this. And, you know, you, you get the same excuse as well. I don't know. My girlfriend and I need to do something today, or I'll have something to you in the next month. And then a month comes and you never see anything. And then, they give you an extension and they still. So. Yeah, I, you know, for, for that simple, for that simple fact, I don't mind taking everything on myself. But, you know, with Lacrimose, despite the fact that I wrote and directed and did the editing and the color grading and the sound effects and ADR and Foley and all that, you know, I, I had a great assistant on set, Bernard Madison. Um, uh you know, my my friend, my good friend of 30 plus years, Phil Lear, flew in from Colorado and uh, helped me with some of the set design, which was amazing. Awesome. He helped me put new floors down. He helped me paint the walls and cabinets. Um, another friend of mine from Colorado, Jill Hutchinson Lawson, uh, she composed the opening track to the movie, where a lot of times, you know, I'm either... I'm either composing the music too, mm -hmm. or finding uh, if I don't have time to do the composition, I'll find some royalty free music, but you'll stepped up, compose some music for the opening scene uh, where, where the flowers die. And so, 
you know, I mean, I might not have had any help in the editing process or, you know, with the writing and directing, but, you know, there were people that did step up to contribute to the film that uh, I'm immensely grateful for. Yeah, absolutely. That's fantastic. Cool. So uh, let's let everybody know where we can find Lacrimose Primrose. When will it be uh, available? Well, this is news to your listeners. So we toyed around with whether we were going to stick with the same distribution company that I've been with since, I don't know, 2014, 20, something like that. Or if we were going to seek out, you know, a different distributor, a distributor or whether we were going to self-release. And, you know, I, I've been saying recently with with me being so hands-on with everything with the movie, it's oh, it almost makes sense to go ahead and self-release it as well. Um, I've been pretty fed up with every distribution company in general, mm-hmm. like on a whole, because I see the same thing with everybody that I speak to where you think once you get signed and you have a distribution deal that sweet, you know, things, things are going good. This is what you've worked hard for to get signed. And now you're signed, but you know, on the indie levels, I mean, unless you bite the apple and you go to Hollywood, all of the, I would say the majority, the majority of the distribution companies that are out there are going to expect you, the artist to promote your film yourself. And I was speaking about this the other day. Um, that is not fair to the filmmakers. Number one, mm-hmm. how can you work on another project if you have to spend all of your time promoting a film that just came out because the distribution company doesn't want to do that for you? Right, yeah. And secondly, so not only is it fair, not only is it taking that artist away from a new project that they could be working on, so and st- instead of writing something new, I got to sit on social media all day and post, hey, go buy my film and go do this, do that, and the other. Uh, the other thing that's unfair is they expect that filmmakers are also savvy at marketing right, right, and yeah. business. Just because you're a talented filmmaker does not mean that you're good at marketing, does not mean that you're good at business. So for a distribution, I feel that if you're a distributor, whether you distribute films or whether you're a book publishing company, if you have enough confidence in an artist to sign them, that it just should be in the description of the distributor and the, and the publisher to promote said artist. And I mean, why would an artist give 30%, 40% to a distribution company who's not doing anything on the back end to promote it? So, you know, the more I think about it, and again, this isn't pointing fingers at any one particular distribution company. I've been finding this from all of my friends in the independent film world is that they all feel the same way. And I just think, shit, you know, I mean, if you wanted to, you can hire an aggregator. An aggregator is a company that has their foot in the door with all the other streaming platforms. So that's what they do. They have an in with Showtime. They have an in with HBO and and or Paramount Plus or Google, whoever. And you pay an aggregator about $2,500. And they basically take your film, get it ready for each, because every platform has different specifications on what type of file they want. But with an aggregator, you pay them about $2,500 and you can choose two outlets in that $2,500 range to, to have your movie released on. So if you tell them, all right, get us in with Hulu and get us in with 
Paramount Plus, they'll do that for you. And then anything after that, you have to pay more, just like with your streaming services. You know, you might want this package and then anything additional you have to pay more for. I don't know if I'm going to go that route. Um, at first, I might do a soft release. Uh, the intent is January 15th. But I look at it this way. Everybody in the world has Amazon. Everybody. Yeah. Mm -hmm. If you have it available for purchase and streaming through Amazon, you don't have to worry. I mean, that one platform in itself, you know, now, I would, like I said, I would like to branch out in the future. But just to get our feet wet, to do a soft launch in January, um, it's definitely going to be available on Amazon and perhaps some other outlets, too. But we have a lot of things that we're working on. Um, for instance... After the release of the DVD and the Blu-ray, um, there's a 3D version of the movie. Oh, cool. Yeah, I saw there was some uh, ad I was looking at when I was looking at uh, yeah. uh, some of your artwork for it or, or some yeah. like the promotional artwork for it. Mm -hmm. I saw one that said 3D. I forgot to ask you about that. That's cool. Are you yeah. you're currently, are, did you make that version already? Or are you planning on doing it? Oh, it's done. Yeah, oh, cool. it's done. Cool. But I don't want to release it right away. I want to release it after the DVD and the Blu-ray come out. And the thing about the 3D version at first, I may change my mind on that, but uh, what I'm leaning towards right now is it's only going to be a limited edition VHS release. Mm -hmm. Oh, nice. I like that. So if you're an extreme <laughs> cinephile and you still like <laughs> yeah. your, uh, VHS tapes, uh, you know, of course, it'll come with your 3D glasses, and uh, but it'll it'll be just a VHS release. Oh, that's great. You know, the funny yeah. thing is, like for... Uh, if you're like a VHS collector, but if you look on, on Amazon, VHS players are like a couple hundred bucks, but you can mm -hmm. go get one in a thrift store for like $10. <laughs> Although exactly. it's very difficult finding a remote that comes with them. I will say that. That is true. That is true. <laughs> so, awesome. Okay, cool. Well, yeah. So let us know when um, it's available and then we'll share it on our Instagram and everything. And what's a good yeah. site that people can just kind of like follow you at in your upcoming work or anything that you're working on currently? Uh, you can follow me on Facebook if you go to JD Ellenberger. And you can follow the film on Facebook at Lacrimose Primrose. And I know the movie does have a face, or I'm sorry, the, the movie does have a Instagram page. I think it's Lacrimose underscore Primrose is the Instagram page. And then JD Ellenberger on Instagram to follow uh, anything that I'll, I'll be doing. So I don't really use Twitter a lot. So sorry, all you. I don't know what is it Twitter or X now whatever they're calling it these days I'm not really on I'm not really on there I think I've made like five posts and I just don't really get the whole thing so yeah I think they would probably they need to keep social like the main ones down to just like a couple options there's way too much stuff to keep track of nowadays especially like as as a filmmaker <laughs> like I just got done making the movie and I got to do all this other stuff yeah exactly there's just there's way too much stuff happening yeah and that was my problem with all the distribution <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then with Twitter, you know, my whole problem with that and why I hate it is because, you know, so they say the only way that you really grow your following is by retweeting other people's tweets. Yeah. I don't have time to retweet. Exactly. Tweets. Yeah. I just want to post what I need to get out and then get offline again. You know what I mean? So, yeah. so I don't really grow an audience because I don't retweet anything. And they say yeah. that's the key to build your Twitter universe. Well, Forget it. They can have it. I don't. I don't like. I don't like social media to begin with. So all you gotta do is just spend twenty four hours a day on social media and not do anything else. That's. That's. I think that's what they want you to do. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> no thanks. All right. Well. Awesome. Well, JD, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Great to see you again. Yeah, thank you. Yes, Absolutely. Thank you.
We've been talking to J.D. Ellenberger, writer-director of Lacrimose Primrose, and we'll be posting updates on when that is available. And until next time, if you're going crazy, madness, you're, you're in a situation like the main author in this movie, Caleb McCallum, and you are going down to pet your imaginary dog, and it's over the side of the bed and something licks your hand, get out of the house. That is not your dog. <laughs> ¶¶